pick it up in verse 13, where we finished the Beatitudes last week, the attitude or the disposition of what the believer in Jesus Christ, who they're to be, it's progressive, their relationship vertically with God, horizontally with humanity, and loving people even when they persecute you and come against you for Jesus' namesake and righteousness' sake. And with that background, we do pick it up in verse 13, where Jesus says this to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the Old Testament or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all this is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is our text for tonight. And while it's in the flow and the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we really have three things here. We have salt, light, and the law of God for the disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a very easy three-point sermon if you're a preacher. You got three topics, salt, light, and the law of God. So let's break these down tonight here, starting with the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. What an interesting statement. I don't know how many world religions or philosophies talk about their disciples or their followers. I never heard Karl Marx say the salt of the earth, you're the scourge of the earth is probably what he should have said, or false religions, what they might say. But Jesus describing the church of Jesus Christ and the disciple of Jesus Christ who makes up the church. So we can start with an individual like we're individuals tonight. And then we come as being a local church. Here we are gathered as two or more. And we're part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. It can be said for each of us individually, collectively here, and part of the universal church that we're a part of worldwide right now. Jesus says to us, from the one individual to all those who are born again this day on planet Earth, July 24th, 2021, that we are the salt of the earth. That's an interesting title. Salt, of course, in that timeline, in that culture, was a preservative. Even as we add preservatives to food, right? Like, people don't like the preservatives because most preservatives essentially have something chemical and usually something bad for you. So we like our food fresh, like whole foods or organic and all that kind of stuff. But in that day and age, salt, of course, was a preservative. It stops putrefaction. Salt stops rotting. They would salt their meats when they had cut their meats, and they would salt them to preserve them. So like when the Roman legions went to go conquer somebody in Central Europe, they'd have their meat, and they would salt it, and that's how they'd preserve it. That's what salt is. Humanity and all of its genius that God gave us being created in his image and his glory early on figured out the value of salt and how it preserves meat and foods and things like that. Salt is, above all else, a preservative. Now, it's a nice flavor. I mean, salt adds flavor. Your eggs, whatever, your steak. I'm a salt guy. I do like salt, so I understand that, and most of you probably do too. 
But I do not believe the context here has so much to do with flavor, although Jesus references that as much as being a preservative. So if we think about you, me, individuals, the church, I'm the universal church on planet Earth about being salt. We can say this, that we're the salt of the earth, and if we lose our flavor, how can something be seasoned? And it's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So if salt doesn't have flavor, why would you put it on your scrambled eggs, right? Why would you do that? It would be meaningless. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't serve a purpose. And so if the salt can't give flavor, and if it can't preserve things, then what's its purpose? It's not going to make your seasoning rack. It doesn't, it doesn't belong. It is truly good for nothing. And Jesus says, not only is it good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And evidently in this culture, when salt lost its value, that's exactly what they used it for. Of course, if you ever lived somewhere in a winter climate, like we did in Vermont, they salt the roads. When it snows from beginning of October before Halloween till Memorial Weekend, my one year in Vermont, it snowed before Halloween, and it snowed on Memorial Weekend. They call it the endless winter. Two seasons, winter and a very brief summer. And they salt the roads, and that's why when you live in those places, your, your cars get destroyed very quickly because of salted roads. And again, if you've ever lived like in four-season places like the Midwest or Colorado or something like that, you, you get that. And so salt, they'll salt the roads. It, it, it melts the snow. It does stuff like that. So that's exactly how it would be used. The salt they use to salt North Burlington Avenue is not the salt that you put on your eggs that morning when you live in North Burlington. Two different salts. One is still has flavor. One's used to clear the roads, and so you can drive your car on the road. And so truly, this is a, an analogy. This is a, a picture, an example by Jesus that we can really very simply understand. So I say again, you, the follower of Jesus Christ, me, the follower of Jesus Christ, we are the salt of the earth. So we think about this, that we are really, when you think about bringing flavor, so when you get a job, you bring flavor to it. When you're in a family gathering, you should be bringing flavor. There's something pleasing about your presence. Now, you can't please men all the time or people, and there are people that will speak evil of you and your family at your workplace, at your school, and these sorts of things. But really, you know, our presence, our presence in the room should bring flavor to the room. It should bring something more. But it should also bring restraint. Our presence in the room should restrain most people from evil they might otherwise, lines they might otherwise cross. For example, there are some people around you when you live for Christ, when you're not in the room at work, they might be a bit more vulgar or a bit more crude. But when you walk in the room, they kind of shuffle their feet and forget that joke and they kind of cut it off or they're gossiping and they stop slandering when you walk in the room. That's a really good thing. That's a nice compliment when people try and hide stuff when you walk in the room. That's an example of being the preservative. Because the preservative is a restraint. We're a restraint against corrosion. And on that note, we're told in 2 Thessalonians that concerning the Antichrist, who is going to come with all the power of Satan and one man to rule a global government with total control over all humanity? And we're also told in the New Testament that many Antichrists have already come. So from Caesar Nero burning Christians for his pleasure in the Colosseum in Rome, 65 AD, to the present politicians who seek to attack and discredit Christians and the people that join them with them, there, the church has been 
and continues to be a restraint against that, their, that worldview. And so we do find ourselves attacked for being a preservative and a prevention against corrosion. And the ultimate prevention against corrosion, against the ultimate corrosion, the Antichrist, and the reign of Satan on planet Earth through a man before Christ comes, is the church. Because we're told in 2 Thessalonians, only one thing restrains the Antichrist, though there's many Antichrists happening at various times. I mean, certainly Hitler and Stalin and people like that were Antichrist. Mary Tudor of England was an Antichrist. There were types of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of Satan working through his organized dominion and minions of principalities and powers in the air, Ephesians 6 tells us. But the ultimate power of Satan on planet Earth still awaits humanity. Let me say that again. The ultimate power of Satan and the kingdom of darkness on planet Earth is still restrained and not yet seen. So from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and all the evil that humanity has ever seen, all we'll know of hell for a believer in Christ is what we see on planet Earth right now. All the world will know of heaven is what they see in you and me as salt of the world. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians that we restrain the Antichrist. We are salt. And we're told that that which restrains the Antichrist is restraining him until now is still restraining him. The Holy Spirit working through the church is restraining the Antichrist. And until Christ comes for his church, he cannot be revealed. His power of darkness cannot be unveiled and released on planet Earth to an unbelieving world, given over to their depravity by God himself, who allows them to believe their delusion. It can't happen because we're still here. We're the salt of the world. Results of the earth. We are preventing total rot and putrefaction of planet earth right now, Church of Jesus Christ. That is what we're doing. You say, why, why do I have to be here to see all the strange stuff we're seeing right now? Because we're the salt. Because God so loved the world, he gave his son. God loves humanity, even rotten, fallen, putrefied humanity at war with him. God loves humanity. And as Jesus said, the angels rejoice when just one soul is made right with God. And souls are being made right with God even this day on planet Earth. And we have these two parallel courses going where there's this evil and this this rot on planet Earth and this degeneration away from God on on a global level. And yet at the same time, we're the church and the gospel still going forth. The Great Commission still being fulfilled and is being done and accomplished by the church, which is the salt of the earth. When you think about being the salt of the earth, it's not so much what we're doing, it's more what we represent and what we're preventing. It's what we're preventing. We're preventing, when you think about things, what can happen next on planet earth? When you think about forced vaccinations, transgenderism, We have a man competing in the Olympics in the women's division who's biologically a man. And you think of these types of things that would seem so insane to us as normal functioning human beings on planet Earth just 12 years ago, before Prop 8 in 2008. And you see what's happened. And you see just this unrestrained. It's like in Revelation when the demons are loose from Earth and from the pit of the Earth and they come out. And we see it just, we see a total lack of restraint. We've seen the removal of Ten Commandments. We've seen the removal of right and wrong and absolute to the shift to moral relativism. And it's so hard to watch. 
But as bad as you think it is right now, can you imagine what happens when the church is gone? I mean, when a man is no longer a man or a woman is no longer a woman, and you can go in the women's room as a man and say, I identify as a woman, and you have laws protecting that right, you say, where can you go from here? Well, let me tell you, I've thought about it. And we can go a lot more darker places than we are right now with this one. So you, you can't just bake your cakes. They're going to make you bake a cake for them and say, you approve that. They're going to force their right on your moral conscience with the authority of the word of God that's restraining against that. And this is where it goes. So it's a shaming of anyone who speaks against those things. It's a, it's a coming against their businesses, their livelihoods. And personal convictions. And so when you remove the rights of personal rights, which is the foundation of our country, by the way, and self-determination, and you have forced the law of the tribe and cancel culture and the woke mob, and your move is toward rotting, so we can't identify a male and a female in kindergarten, but we can't give them direction of right and wrong with the Ten Commandments. Or pray for them. And this is where we are in 2021. And it is exasperating, but trust me and believe me, we're still here with a purpose. We can't let the frustration of things we can't control keep us from doing what we're called to do, which God does control. He controls it all, actually. But what we can control is our attitude and our hearts and to be about the Father's business. And we are salt. And we are restraining, as putrefied as things might seem, we're still a restraint against further putrefication or in the midst of it. Because there's a lot more dark places that this can all go. And I think we all know that. And that's not the point of my message. The point of my message is we're a preservative and we're a restraint against it. The Bible tells us not to remove the ancient boundaries. And the ancient boundaries are God's law and his word. And we've watched our society... And much of the world remove those boundaries, but let them not be removed from our hearts and our minds and our personal convictions. We need to be like Martin Luther putting the thesis on the church door in Wittenberg saying, this is who we are, this is what we believe, and we're not going to be moved from these things. We need to be like Paul the Apostle saying, this is who I believed in, and this is what I'm called to do, and nor do I count my life dear to me, and I'm going to complete the race that God sent before me. This is who we need to be as salt. Salt is preserving, and just you not capitulating to the insanity and the madness of the society around us is your calling from the Lord, my calling from the Lord as disciples of Jesus Christ, that we continue to stand and represent what truth is. That's the church. Because if the church of Jesus Christ doesn't stand for absolute truth, then we're worthless. And we're not even worthy to be scattered on the streets of North Burlington in a winter snowstorm in January. We're worthless. Our flavor, our value is in the convictions of our hearts and conscience before the living God, like all those who came before us. And we are not moved from these things because society forces its views contrary to these things. We're the salt of the earth. Keep our flavor. I intend to keep my flavor. It's hard to watch pastors roll over and show cowardice. But it's not like they became cowards. They always were cowards. It's not like someone suddenly became afraid of Big Surf. They were always afraid of Big Surf. It was never in them. You see, that's how it works in life. It's not the fire 
that necessarily makes it happen. The fire reveals what's already happened. So we need a purpose in our hearts to be faithful, to be salt. We need to be willing to stand, and having done all, stand. And when necessary, speak what needs to be spoken and needs to be said. God's not calling us to save the world. He's calling us to be faithful to him and his word. That's a pretty easy mandate. You and I being faithful daily to the word of God for our conscience and our heart and our actions and reactions is a fairly simple play call. But if it's suddenly on us to save the world, then we're the Savior instead of Jesus. No, if we are the last generation in the church of Jesus Christ, and someone's going to be, might be our children or our children's children or many generations to come, they're going to need to stand as salt in the most putrefied time in human history, much more putrefied than what we see in our own timeline right now. So we need a purpose in our hearts to just keep our flavor and not be moved from the compass of north, that the word of God is a final authority in all things. And with God, yes is yes, and amen. And with the Father of lights, there's no shadow of turnings. He hasn't changed his character or his objectives and his plans with the human race and his universe. And we want to align ourselves and continue to align ourselves in obedience, in our thought processes, in our attitudes, in our dispositions to his truth and to continue to be salt. We don't have to force ourselves on anybody. We're salt on the table. If they grab us, it's preservative. It's flavor. If they reject us, that's their choice. Preserve our own hearts. Preserve our own minds. Add flavor to our own hearts, our own minds, our household, our families, and the people we love, and the society we live in. Praying for our society. Praying for people and caring about people. Some people are going to be putrefied no matter what you do to try and stop them. But don't lose your flavor just because they're putrefied. We keep our flavor because we're the salt of the earth. We're the church of Jesus Christ. The second thing we see is you're the light of the world. So as salt, we're a restraint, but as the light of the world, we're a light. You are a light of the world. A city is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor they light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a lampstand. If you give light to all who are in the house, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So... The light of the world has the idea that we're showing the way in darkness. The world is in darkness. Like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that there was darkness and light. And God drew the distinction of darkness and light. Literally, in time, space, and matter. The measurable day of time and the unit of time in his universe. Then in the Gospel of John, that same concept is brought forth to moral. Where... Jesus is the light, and he's the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, but men didn't comprehend it. And so, coming forth in the New Testament, we're taught that there's a moral darkness and there's a moral light. And Jesus is the moral light. Jesus is the light of the world, and he says, we're the light of the world. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he tells us, his disciples, we're the light of the world. Since he's the light of the world, and we're the light of the world, then what we need to do is reflect his light like the moon and the sun. We're not manufacturing the light. We're abiding in the light, and we're reflecting the light. We really are like the moon. The light we're shining in the world is not a light that we're manufacturing. It's a light that we're reflecting, that we've been with Jesus. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians, seeing him in the mirror, being transformed from glory to glory, and we're in his presence being transformed, we bring that to our world as we go out and about, and we're the light of the world. 
recently when Jennifer and I drove back from Florida a couple months ago, we had been in San Antonio and we're going into West Texas. And now, if you know anything about Texas on the 10, once you get about 50 miles west of San Antonio, there's a whole lot of nothing all the way to El Paso. It's about 400 miles of like capital uppercase and nothing. And you go like maybe 60 miles, there might be a small town stuff, but there's a lot of darkness. And I remember we drove at night that night. It was the, really the only night we drove at night. And you, you, as you get away from society, society and a lot of people, there's a couple trucks out there, but there's some stretches at night where you're like, it's just dark, like Texas dark. Now, Pastor Chuck used to talk about in Orange County, the, the light pollution, that you can't really see the heavens that declares glory. But when, when you pull over in the dark in West Texas, you can see the glory because it is dark, dark, dark. And you can see that small town of 2,000 people that you have your hotel reservation at, you know, for Fairfield Inn, you know your map, your phone says it's like 10 miles ahead, but you you can see it way out there because it's so dark you can't miss the city that's lit up because it's the only city that's lit up. Ozona, Ozona, Texas. I mean, it's, it's, everything's dark out there. It's like a black canvas and that has to be, that has to be Ozona, Texas. It's the city on a hill. You can see the light. In a dark world, we're like Ozona, Texas. We're the city on a hill. People need to be able to see that light from a distance. They need to be drawn to the light. The light lights the way. In darkness, the light lights the way. One thing I don't like about camping is you're in the dark. And if you've got to go up in the middle of the night, you've got to get a flashlight. And I, I, you know, you need the flashlight to show you the way. I like light. I like to see where I'm going. But the world's in darkness. Jesus is the light. We're the light of the world. We reflect the light. And we bring that moral light and that moral direction. And we, we do the right things. And we show people the light. Or as people say, I've seen the light. The famous movie that won the Academy Award in 1941, Sergeant York. The true story of that World War I hero. Sergeant York, Alvin York. It's a classic. I was at the, I was at Robert Heflin's house. I was on your TV. I was like, yeah, it's Sergeant York. One of my favorite movies. But uh, Alvin York gets hit with lightning. It's a true story. He was a rebel and they got hit with lightning. It's in Tennessee. And there's a scene in the movie where they're like, what happened to the town rebel rousing Alvin York? They said, oh, Alvin York done seen the light. Oh, Alvin York done seen the light. Right? We've seen the light. Jesus is the light. And the way people see the light is we reflect the light. And we're a light showing the way in darkness. We're a city on a hill shining for the Lord. And they see the light by our actions and reactions of the character that Christ has produced in our life and how we proactively act and how we reactively act to various circumstances in the human experience. Now, obviously, it's not perfect. As my sister says, progress, not perfection. If you are here last Saturday, you might have caught that. I actually prayed that. And my wife almost had a laughing fit with my daughter, Hannah. Like, if you know my wife, when she gets silly, she's tired, she, she almost gets in a laughing fit. And she almost got in a laughing fit because, of course, she knows my sister very well. But, I mean, she's like, my husband is quoting Barbie in rehab quotes while he's praying at the end of service, you know. But my sister, you know, she's like, she gets overwhelmed and stuff, right? You know, and she's like, but she's like, Joey, 
progress, not perfection. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's biblically based, right? We're being transformed from glory to glory. Not that I've attained, as Paul said, but I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's progress, not perfection. Just another way of saying it. And we're not a perfect light, but we are the light. Our light might be dim at times because we're going through a difficult season. Maybe have heartache, we've made some bad decisions, and we're beating ourselves up like David in a psalm or something. But we're still the light. Dim light, bright light, we're, we're still the light. We're never unplugged. We're not meant to be unplugged. We're meant to reflect that light. Progress, not perfection. And, and people are in darkness, and they need to see the light. They need to see the light of Christ in our life. They need to see Jesus in our eyes. We're going to see shortly that the eyes are the lamp of the soul, and they, we reflect, our eyes reflect our heart, and people need to see Jesus and the light coming from our eyes. When we look upon people, they need to see Jesus looking upon the multitude with compassion and empathy. They can't see us looking upon putrefying meat. They need to see us looking upon them with the light of Jesus Christ. We have to shine in darkness, but not be repulsed by darkness. For we're in the world, but not of the world. So we need to shine. And like Jesus said, some people don't come to the light. They hate the light. They say, turn off the light. Right? Turn off the light. But Jesus never tells us to turn off the light. Now, Jesus was the light, is the light. He walked away when people wanted darkness. When the Pharisees sought to kill him, it says he turned and went to another place. Sometimes your light's not welcome, but it doesn't mean you put your light out. It just means you shine it in a different direction. You just redirect your light. We're not into putting our light out or putting it under a basket. It's just, okay, men love darkness. They don't come to light. That's what Jesus said. But still, I mean, we're the light of the world. So we've got to let our light shine. And we let our light shine. And in so doing, we're reflecting Jesus that people would glorify our Father in heaven. That's the objective of our light shining. That when people see our good works, so let your light, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ultimately, they, our light shines for Jesus and glorifies the Father. People see the heart of the Father when they see us shining for Jesus. When we have... I will say a higher moral standard and a higher character, not as an offense to put people down for less of a moral standard or less of a character, but if our standard in morals are based upon the word of God and Jesus Christ and theirs are based upon philosophies of men or faulty world systems, ours is a higher standard. And it is a better standard because it's God's standard and it never changes. We can always know what is morally right to do by abiding in Christ and obeying his word. Like I say so often, it's not the deep, mysterious, mysterious things of God that ever have given me difficulty. It's the simple things of God. Forgive that person. Let that go. Reconcile before you get to the judge, lest he throw you in jail too. Don't hate that person. Don't lie. Don't lust. These are the things that keep me busy every day. I enjoy reading the book of Job, but I don't spend a lot of time meditating on the questions they all ask philosophically about the Lord between chapters 5 and 38. 
I'd much rather meditate on Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. Thank you. Doing the right thing. Martin Luther King Jr. said it's always the right time to do the right thing. And I know in my own life, it is always the right time to do the right thing. It's always the right time to tell the truth. It's always the right time to make things right. We have today. It's always the right time to call someone and say you're sorry when you're aware that you offended them and you can make it right. It's always the right time to say thank you to someone that you never thanked when you should have thanked and you suddenly realize you want to thank them. It's always the right time to do the right thing. To let go of things God's saying let go of. To embrace things God's saying to do. See, when we do the right thing and we do good, our light shines before men and women and, it glor- and the good works we do glorifies the Father in heaven. It's not that hard. When I was in Florida, I had this wonderful day. And Luke's street is somewhat narrow, and there's never any traffic. I've been in that front yard. I've not seen a car go by on that residential street for four hours at a time. And it's the cutest neighborhood ever. It's, you can't even explain it. It's so beautiful. so cute. But after this long day of stand-up paddleboarding and golfing and doing all these things that were so fun, and I backed up and I, I hit a car that was parked. Not that, you know, I was going slowly, just like you. Most of us are all backed in or bumped into something, you know, bumper cars. And you hear that, I was like, oh. And it, it's, it's dark. But the right thing, you're going to go knock on the door and say, hey, I'm really sorry about that. And that's what I did. It was just the right thing to do. Like, I don't, I don't get a brownie badge or something. It's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Like, if you hit my car, I'd like you to say, Joey, we hit your car and we exchange insurance information and we do the right thing. We do the right thing. And I knocked on the door and it turned out for good because we finally got to meet the neighbor across the street and talk with him. And it was the son's girlfriend. And, and uh, she's like, what, were you even looking? Like, you know, it's kind of hard to be belittled by a young millennial, but I had it coming. So I was like, she's like, you didn't even look? I was like, actually, I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't look. You know, I didn't look. Um, and, um, and they called her parents, and they came, and they were really upset. Um, and they were speaking a different language, and she was speaking with them. And uh, evidently, someone had hit them previously and done major damage to another car. This is a brand-new Mercedes, by the way. <laughs> Not a brand-new Mercedes. It's like, oh, Lord, why can't I hit a junker? You know, it's got to be a brand-new Mercedes. And uh, they were really upset, and they wanted to call the police and everything. And I'm like, are you serious? And Luke's like, Dad, shut up. I got this. I said, like, call the police. And, you know, and, and, you know Luke, Luke's just like the way he is. He's such a peacemaker. And I, I was just like, we don't need to call the police. You know, like, we get in an accident, like 405, you pull over. That's my insurance. That's your insurance. But they were really upset because this has happened to them. And then the daughter said something to her parents, obviously, that calmed them down. And it was the strangest thing. They stopped. And they told me, thank you. Thank you for telling us you did this. It was just the right thing. Like, they went from upset, so we're all like, they were all like chit-chatting about what college you're all going to and this and that. But like, the right thing is always the right thing. Maybe someday they'll know that the guy that hit the car is the, the, the guy across the street's father, and he's a pastor, and I just did the right thing. Just the right thing to do. Barbara's like, oh, I know people that would drive away. I'm like, me too. 
But that's just not the right thing to do because you sow and reap anyways. You know, what, I want someone to smash my car too? Like it all goes around and comes around, right? Like the surfers say, juju, whatever. Like it's going to come around. Like just, just knock on the door. And, and, and she was parked way off the curb. So it was easier to hit her. But that wasn't the issue. I told her, it's always the moving car's fault. It's 100% my fault. I feel terrible. I'm really sorry. And I have to pay for it. But that's the right thing. See, it's never about the money, is it? It's never about the money. It's about the heart. It's about doing the right thing. So I'm not saying it's like I'm some superhero because I didn't look in the rearview mirror. See, you know, I, my wife, Jennifer's always like, look, look back, careful backing up. You know how the wives are with the guys and everything. And I'm like, I haven't been in action for 20 years. And I can't say that anymore. <laughs> I lost all my equity to say that. It's like, honey, I'm in action for 20 years. It's like, oh, gosh. You know? <laughs> I've lost all equity to say that. I can't say it anymore. <laughs> That's what really hurts more than 250 bucks on the deductible. It's like, I can't tell my wife, relax, I know what I'm doing. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> but you still got to do the right thing. Let your light shine before men. I'm really glad those people were gracious. And I don't, you know, like Jesus said, when you do what you're supposed to do, you should just say, I did what I'm supposed to do as a worthless servant. You know, and that's basically all I did. I didn't do anything great. I just did what's the right thing to do. We do the right thing. And... It's never about the money. Do the right thing. Make it right. Treat people. Love your neighbors. You love yourself, right? We spent six months in Deuteronomy. We've been learning this anyways, which brings us to our final application, Jesus and the law. So we have, we're the salt of the, the earth and we're the uh, light of the world. And now we get this whole thing about Jesus and the law, the law of God. Of course, we just spent all that time in Deuteronomy with the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law for government, and the religious law that points to Jesus dying on the cross, and Jesus says to his disciples in the context of what he's teaching, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. Jesus as the Messiah was never against the Old Testament law or the, the words of the prophets, which, of course, the Sadducees and to some degree the, the, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees and to some degree the Sadducees believed in. Sadducees believed the law of God was absolute authority, word of God. The Pharisees believed the law and all the prophets. That, that's where they were at with their theology and their worldviews. So at any rate, Jesus said, I didn't, they, they tried to play Jesus against the word of God in the Old Testament, which is impossible to do because he came to fulfill the Old Testament. In fact, there in Luke 24, we know this, that he, when he was resurrected, he showed his disciples, the apostles, how he fulfilled the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three categories of the Old Testament, the poetic books, the historical books, and the prophetic books. And he fulfilled those things. And we understand that it all points to Christ. They're all shadows of things to come. Christ is the fullness. So he's saying contextually here, I'm not against the Ten Commandments and the law of God. I am fulfilling them. See, by the time he went to the cross and rose from the grave, he fulfilled everything that the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi were pointing to, to him. And he is the Messiah, and he fulfilled them perfectly. And then he, he says this very interesting comment in verse 19, whoever breaks one of these of the least of the commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now that, that's always got my attention, but it gets my attention a little bit more at this point in my life and ours together collectively as a church family as we just went through Deuteronomy, right? We just went through Deuteronomy and the law. So when I read this in the Sermon on the Mount, so we have to decide with this, what Jesus is teaching here. Is this so limited in context 
to his disciples in this one message for a one and a half year window before he went to the cross and rose from the grave, or in the greatest sermon of all time, this has a a farther reaching application than the evangelical church often gives the Ten Commandments. I think that this is a universal, eternal passage of Scripture. I don't think historically it's limited, like, say, the dietary law of the Old Testament. I don't think it's like that. I think what Jesus is talking about, the law of God here, and he says that whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so also is least in the kingdom. Now, we put that here, and then we say, all right, we know in the New Testament that there's a lot of people who said you get saved by faith in Jesus, but you're not really saved. You have to go back to being a Jew. You have to be circumcised and keep the law. And those, those guys are called Judaizers. And this is what Paul spoke against when he wrote the Galatians and Romans and all that, that all the law is fulfilled in that we love our neighbor as ourself. And because we're born again, we do that. And I find, I believe, especially in the modern church, the modern American church, even what we call evangelicalism, with being saved by grace, that we sometimes cheapen grace, I believe that, that we go forward in an altar call, we say a prayer to receive Christ, we're born again, and somehow we have this insurance policy for heaven on the day of Christ Jesus, but we don't have a transformation of the Holy Spirit in our life that begins to produce a life that glorifies Christ. Because we know this, a life that glorifies Christ is a life born of the Spirit, living out by the Spirit, the good things of God revealed in his word, including the Ten Commandments. Would God's spirit ever be contrary? We have to ask ourselves, would God's spirit in our life of a born-again believer ever be contrary to the Ten Commandments? Of course not. That'd be ludicrous. And I'm glad when we raised our kids when they were younger that we had the, the music cassette tapes about the Ten Commandments and teaching our kids the Ten Commandments. And when I went to catechism as a young child, I learned the Ten Commandments. And we, we used to be a nation with the Ten Commandments. We used to teach the Ten Commandments in our public school system. They're, they're eternal truths of right and wrong that never change. Now, the Ten Commandments will never save us. We can't keep the Ten Commandments and be saved. We understand that. We all understand that here. We're not going to be good people that keep the Ten Commandments, stand before God and say, hey, you have to accept me. I'm a really good person. I kept the Ten Commandments. No. To be guilty of one part of the law is guilty of all, and we know that. So we know that we don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, as Jesus, as Barbie says, progress, not perfection, right? We're not perfect, and we don't keep the Ten Commandments, and we're not justified by the Ten Commandments. Understand that, theologically. But when speaking of the New Covenant and being born of the Spirit and having the Spirit within us, God said in the Old Testament that in those days he'll put his spirit in us, and he'll write his law on our tender hearts as opposed to tablets of stone. So in the new covenant, you could never show in the book of Acts they didn't esteem the word of God. They studied the word of God, and the apostles' doctrine is opening up the word of God of the Old Testament, showing Christ in it. And if the Holy Spirit is now in us, which the Bible tells us he is when we give our life to Christ, then the Ten Commandments, specifically contextually that we're talking about here, The law is written on our hearts, not stone tablets. So it's not written on our hearts to try and justify us or to be our tutor to bring us to Christ because we've already been brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, nor to condemn us. But it's written on our hearts to guide us and to obey God's word 
and to make the right moral decisions, to make the right character decisions, and to know that lying is always lying, truth is truth, adultery is adultery, and murder is murder. Now, when we come to the text next week, we're going to have all these passages where Jesus said, you've heard it said that murder is this and adultery is that and lying is this. And we're going to, we're going to get his teaching on the Ten Commandment moral laws. But here, in this context, he says that anyone who breaks them and, and teaches men to do so is very bad. Basically, those are all the politicians who, a lot of politicians in America since I was born who've done that. All those politicians who wrote bills and legislation to remove the Ten Commandments from shaping the direction of the future generations of this country and replaced it with Heather as two mommies, and now we have what we have. It's their condemnation, but not ours. It's theirs, not ours, because that's what they've done. That's exactly what they've done. But they're the world, and they act like the world. We're salt, we're light, we're the church. So even if the Ten Commandments are not the moral standards outside these walls, let them be the moral standards, not just in outward actions of our life, but in the secret, secret most inner parts of our hearts. May we teach it to our children and our children's children, not that it's going to save them, but by the Spirit of God is going to guide them in good decisions for their entire life. And then finally he said this, that whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I would prefer to be called great than not in the kingdom of heaven, wouldn't you? So when something's going down at the family dinner table, don't be afraid. Speak up. You're teaching the family. Or at work, you're teaching people things that are great. And you're showing them true righteousness. Because we're not quoting the law to justify ourselves. We're quoting the law and living the law because we are justified by faith. It's not Jesus plus the law, but Jesus helping us show the world the ideal man, the ideal woman of a life surrendered to Christ. Because the Ten Commandments are the ideal of moral right and wrong. And the Spirit guides us in shining and reflecting a true righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Theirs was outward and self-righteousness, and they're going to justify themselves. That's a righteousness that we have to exceed. Not by supplanting them with a greater outward righteousness, as if we're another religious sect, but by brokenness and receiving Christ and being born again and having positional righteousness through faith, and then by having that by the Holy Spirit, then living out the life of faith in the power of the Spirit. We're not manufacturing fleshly righteousness. We are demonstrating spirit-led righteousness. Because the law is not a stone tablet over our heads by which we seek to justify ourselves. The law is being lived out by the Spirit who wrote it as we're walking in the Spirit, surrendered to Christ. This is the discipleship of Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness that exceeds human religion. Born of faith, led by the Spirit, glorifying Christ.